you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about the practice of law. We learn in law school how to practice law. No, we don't. We learn about how to think like a lawyer. Then you go out into the business and you learn how to practice law. And hopefully you have mentors, you learn, et cetera. But one thing that's not taught in law school and it's not taught by most mentors is uh, the business of law. And Rez and I have had so many discussions. Um, I actually implemented starting yesterday officially, but a lot of work had gone into it in my firm. And I thought it would be wonderful to share some general thoughts about how you run a law practice to actually make money and understand what you're doing in your practice, okay? So everybody knows Reza Torch today, Torch Law. The guy's a goddamn genius. I started <laughs> Law Works, Law Works in Orange County. We're gonna move, have one in LA as well. But Rez, I'd love to get your thoughts, first of all, generally on, you know, we all are talking about practicing law what about the business of law yeah which is my favorite part um and and i'll tell you i, I mean most of what i'm sharing with everyone is usually learned through the mistakes i've made and for many many years and i've been practicing now this is my 15th year and um for many many years i just assumed that you know i had this vision I had this belief, I had these core values in my head, and I just assumed that if I hired somebody to join my firm, that they automatically knew that. They knew my vision, they knew my values, they knew um, just how to operate. And I was, I was very, very uh, sorely mistaken and sadly mistaken, and, and it was a real struggle for me because you know at one point I had a revolving door of employees. I mean, they would just come in and we'd either fire them or they wouldn't show up. And, um, you know, it was really stressful when, when you think about, hey, look, I'm trying to build a practice. I'm trying to make it profitable. And the only way to do that is really scale and hire support and delegate. But, you know, it was at a point where in one day, I let go of 14 people and I was left with, with me and six others. And it was like a holy shit moment because I'd gotten to the point where I didn't even want to go into the office anymore. I mean, I didn't. I was stressed out. I mean, I hated what I did. I, even though I love personal injury, I love my clients. I just hated dealing with the drama of the office every day. When I let those 14 people go, I thought at that time it was the worst day of my life. And I realized that it starts with, with us. It starts with the firm owner. It starts at the top. And so we had this case manager who was just phenomenal. I mean, she's the best case manager I've probably seen to this day, um, but she was really toxic. And she would go around and, and cause drama and set up scenarios to get people, other people in trouble. I mean, she, just, she was sick. She was like a sick person, but she was making us money. And my position with the staff who would complain about her was, look, all I care about is the numbers, figure it out. Don't bring me this, this petty stuff. That was my position with everybody in the firm. So on one hand, I would go out and, and talk to our team and say, you're like family. I believe in you. You know, I got your back no matter what. And then on the other hand, 
I was full of shit because I wasn't living by those same core values. I actually wasn't there for my team. I didn't have their back, even though I thought they did because they, they come to me and say, this toxic person is doing X, Y, Z, and I just tell them, well, deal with it, too bad. And so I realized that it really just starts with us. It starts at the top. And if we are not, if we don't have the integrity, if we don't, if we don't have to have the actual strength and ability to deliver on our core values. And I'm, I'm a firm believer in core values. And, and you can ask Mike, I mean, I talk about the first thing we should talk about with our team is what are our core values? What are my core values? Um, and set those. Because when you share that, they understand how you expect them to behave, how you expect them to live, how you expect them to make their decisions. And when you get a group of people who believe in the same core values and who live by that, it it makes a world of a difference. And so, so I got rid of those 14 people and it was an oh shit moment, but we started to rebuild. But then I started focusing on things like culture, like core values, like sharing our vision. And those things made a profound impact because people by nature, want to be a part of something really great. They want to be a part of something really good. And our core purpose, our core value, our torque law that we've got blasted everywhere. It's in every meeting. It's in the first slide of every presentation we do is we change people's lives. That is our core value. So when our receptionist is answering the phone all day long, when our medical records, people are ordering medical records all day long, it's tedious, it's grinding. We pull them back and without the receptionists answering the phone, without the medical records, without the lawyers, without the lien negotiators, none of what we do is possible. Raz, let me interrupt for one second if I can. Yeah. Because you've got, I mean, this guy is such a wealth of knowledge and I want to get to some of the specifics to whet everybody's ap appetite. But I just wanted to say one thing. One of the things, Reza, that you and I've talked about and you taught me really is, you know, I've been very successful in the way I practice law, right? Relatively. I wanted to make more money. I made more money. I wanted to make more money. I want to make more money. But I got to tell you, the way that I practice, the way that most of us practice limits us. We are a finite thing. Right? There's only so much time in the day, so many people, so many things we can do. And what Rez is talking about in terms of a firm culture about an attitude is that it allows you to add people to a team that makes you exponentially more successful, exponentially more money coming into the firm. And for all of us, at some point, you're going to hit a wall. You're like, God damn it, I'm working 24 seven. And I'm capped out at X amount a year. This is the path to doing the same amount of work, but making a lot more money. But Rez, could you share with us, if you would, just the, some of the core values that you've come to that coalesce that that you feel like has helped your firm? Yeah. So our core. So we've got we've got our five. It's unwavering integrity. So basically. Stand, do what you say and say when you, what you do and do the right thing even when no one's looking. Growth mindset, that means always be growing, always be learning, 
respect for each other. That's a big one. And respect for each other applies not only to the people in our firm, but opposing counsel, uh, anyone, vendors, whoever we deal with, have respect, teach people, treat people with respect. There's no reason to be shitty or snarky in an email. You don't achieve anything by doing that. Um, striving for the win, working towards the win. Um, Results-based, not effort-based. I mean, you could have, you could be busy all day long. 15 hours a day, you could be busy. And just doing busy work, that really gets you nowhere. So we want to be a results-oriented practice and organization, not an effort-based. I mean, we expect effort. That's what we're paying people to do. And then radical authenticity. Just be yourself, you know? Don't, don't talk behind people's back. I mean, say your mind. If you've got some criticism, don't hold it in and then go share it with the rest of the staff. Share it with the people that can actually make a difference. And so through these core values, through this is how you build culture because everybody you hire, you bring in, and you could be a two-person office. It's the same thing. It's a little bit easier to manage that dynamic and the culture and share that. But as you grow, as you hire more people, you want them to know that this is who you are as a business owner, and this is what you believe in. And if they want to be a part of it, they're more than welcome. And I'll tell you, the last few people that we've wanted to fire have left on their own because their behaviors were totally against our core values. It's very uncomfortable for somebody to work at our firm who does not share and believe in these same core values. And it makes all the difference in the world. I know it could sound like bullshit. And I used to think that it's bullshit. What a waste of time, core values. What, what does this have to do anything with running a law firm? But the problem is we're not just lawyers and this isn't just a profession, this is a business. And so I'm sure some of you have heard this, the non-lawyer owned law firms that are coming down the pipeline and non-lawyer, non-lawyers being able to practice to some capacity here in California law. In Arizona, non-lawyers can now own law firms. And what that does is it opens up firm ownership to all the biggest corporations in the world, all the hedge funds, all the private equity, now, what they're going to want, and they're going to they're going to flood the markets for sure. I think it's just going to happen across the country in the next five to ten years. And if we are not now thinking like a business owner, like a CEO, then we're going to have a lot of trouble competing with these guys because what they're going to do is find people off of Wall Street who have run Fortune 500 companies to come run law firms. It's just going to happen, and it's a reality. So when I think about my business, I think about our firm. I think about, well, if I don't know what we're spending on advertising, if I don't know what my cost per acquisition of a case is, if I don't know what my average settlement is, if I don't know what my average fee is, if I don't know how many cases I'm settling per month, how many cases we're dropping, how many we're being subbed out on, if I don't know this, and I was a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 public company, I would be fired so fast. So... Now, this is a lot more important, right? This isn't some public company. This, this is our livelihood. This is something that we have worked on pretty much our, our entire lives, right? Our entire professional lives and building. So what more important than providing for your family and having stability and having security? So when I make decisions, when I make investments, when I hire people, I think about you know, I'm not an absent law firm owner. I, I don't even, I, 
you know, I'm a business owner, I am a CEO. And so when I'm making decisions, I try to put myself in that mindset, like, holy shit, you know, why, why, why don't I know this information? I mean, I should know this. I mean, these are critical pieces of information. Um, where are your cases coming from? How do you double down on that? Does it make sense? Um, should you fire somebody who's toxic, but you're holding on to for too long? You know, if you were a public company, again, if you're CEO of a public company, you'd be gone. They, you wouldn't last. And so if it's, if a CEO of a Fortune 500 company is held to that high of a standard, then we should hold ourselves that high to that high of a standard. And we're going to have no choice. Um, and so that's just kind of my mentality and how, how I've been thinking about it over the last few years is, has been really my focus on thinking about it from a business perspective. Got it. Reza, I'm having a lot of internet problems. I'm sorry, Wi-Fi problems. But um, can you explain then how you take some, in some specifics? And we'll talk about this and what I'm doing in my firm after you, uh, you get off in the second hour. But how do we identify what we want to measure um, so that we know that we're accomplishing positive movement on cases in a way that people understand if they keep doing more of the following things, it's gonna move the, the cases forward. Yeah. And how do you track? Yeah, that's great. That, that's really great. So I think um, key performance indicators, KPI, um, every business has these. And basically it's a piece of information that really drive momentum and drive results. So for us as a PI firm, we have a report that comes out every week that goes to the whole firm. Everybody sees it. It's, it's for every position has a KPI. So for me, this is important. We want to settle cases. And in order to settle cases, you have to get demands out. So one of our KPIs is how many demands went out per case manager this week. Now, in order to get demands out, you need medical records. So another KPI for our legal assistant is how many medical records did you order that week? Now, we ran into a problem where people were manipulating our CRM, so it showed that they ordered you know, more than they actually had actually done. So then I decided, well, now I need to add a KPI that says how many medical records came in this week. So then you could see the big difference there. Um, so that's for our like prelit. It's you know, medical records uh, requested, medical records received, how many demands went out. That's critical, absolutely. For our intake team, it's how many leads did you service? How many cases did we sign up? Um, how many retainers went out that didn't come back? Because you want to know the close percentage. These are the things that make a difference. Now, I think a KPI that doesn't really make sense is, well, how many phone calls came in? I mean, that doesn't really move the needle. So if you're in a litigation setting, I would want to know how many de depots my attorneys took. How many, were, how many were set? Like how many depots were noticed? How many actually were completed? How many were defended? How many IMEs? I think IMEs are, are absolutely critical. And I, and I think I think you guys know, without a, the client depot, without the IME, you're not really in a position to settle. So we really try to drive those two things from happening really early on. And then, so um, and then you can get into the expert depots and then you can ultimately get into mediations. How many mediations were set? How many were completed? So let me interrupt. And again, I apologize. I'm now looking at my phone because my Wi-Fi doesn't work and I'm on my phone. 
Can you hear me? Yeah, you're you're echoing. Can you mute your desk? Oh, you're moving. Okay, I'm moving. Okay, so so I want to show some concrete examples to everybody in a little bit um, because I think it will really benefit people. But I want to ask you. I know that you track this through certain software. Um, is that right? Through CasePeer? Yeah. So, okay. And so, yeah, most CRMs have, have reports in there where you can pull. So we use Lead Docket for our lead management. We pull our leads reports and data from there. And then we use CasePeer for our case management software. And we pull the data from there. And it's, most of it's automatic. There is some manual effort. There's one person that's in charge of doing this every Monday where she'll put it all into a, a Google document and that's how it gets shared with the rest of the firm. So what I'd, I'd like to do is I wanted to open the floor to questions. Um, after this, I'm gonna show you cause I have case beer, but I don't, it's not, I'm not using it adequately. And I'm gonna show you how we started it this past week, kind of on a ground floor level, a lot more simplistic, but you got to start somewhere that I think everybody on here can do it the way that we're doing it to start. But let me open up to questions. Um, I know this is a lot of information, but you know this is the way to make money to run a practice from a business perspective. So open the floor. Yeah, and I'll just say a, a couple of things about technology. Like there's a ton of CRMs out there. You don't have to use CasePure. There, there's so many other options out there, but the, the software is only as good as the data that you put in, right? So it's, it's pretty much like everything else. Right. The tools are there, it's just you using them. Um, and the other thing about so making money- So let me tell you- Yeah, just really quickly about the making ahead, money part. We, you know, I used to go year after year, you know, not really tracking this stuff, you know, you know, hoping the settlements would come in and then they would come in and then we do our taxes at the end of the year and we're like, okay, great, we made a few bucks. But we didn't really know what it costs to acquire that case and what we spend to manage that case and ultimately what our net result in terms of profit would be at the end. And that's just a crazy, crazy way to run a business. No other business is run like that. So let me say this, Rez um, and I talked about this for how long we've been talking about this for a long time. And he recommended a book called Fireproof, which I think a lot of you have, have read. And it's written by a guy named Mike Morse, who is claims to be the largest PI lawyer in the state of Michigan. And he talks exactly about what Rez is talking about. In fact, Rez, I think you say that you read that book and you got so many great ideas, but one of the things that struck me is he said, you know, and he owns the firm, him, they have about 180 million a year in fee revenue. And he's built that up. But you know what he said is he said, the tracking has gotten to a point of such detail that I know within a few thousand dollars, how much money my firm is going to make next month next year, six months from now, et cetera. And what that projection accuracy allows you to do is I get, I get asked all the time, well, do I take some of this money and I put it in marketing? Do I put it into this? Should I hire more people? Well, should I do lead generation? Should I do this, that, or the other? 
And you can imagine how much easier those decisions are if you have projections and tracking so that you know that the ship doesn't go off the edge of the cliff once you spend a hundred grand on marketing and then it goes dry as a bone for six months, right? And this is, again, we're talking about we all want to do what we do in law, but build our practices. Res, can you talk about that a little bit? Wait, may, I, may I ask a quick question, Reza? You, sure. Judikoff, you said something about you, you determine the cost. I understand acquisition cost. How do you determine the cost of your handling the case? I know you've got the cost part of it, but, but the employee time, do you just take an average or what's your method? Yeah, well, so we're, our teams are broken up. So every case has an attorney assigned to it, has a case manager and a legal assistant. So we sort of lump up the three salaries, divide it across 12 months, and then we look at it like that. The, the trouble is coming down to an exact science, I think is impossible because our teams are handling about 80 to 120 cases each team. But you can, you can look at the total cost of the salary and, and benefits or whatever, and then look at it in terms of what that team generated for you that year. So, I mean, at a minimum, you want them to be paying for themselves, right? Yes. Thank you. Do you, you Re Rez, do you have, over time, have you figured out margins? Like, for example, I have, in my past, I've looked at my, fee, my total fee revenue and how much I take home after all expenses pre-taxes and there's some consistencies, you know, you have a 50% margin or a 30% margin. Have you done that? I, I have, and, and we've tried to get better about calculating that. Look, if I can get 25% margin at the end of the day, I'd be really happy. In other words, if you pull in $10 million in fees, you want to be able to, after you pay everything, clear 2.5? Yeah. All right. And how did you get to where you understood that that is a number that you're happy with? Um, probably because where we started, um, the margin was very, very low and it was scary low to the point where, you know, when I saw it, it was alarming. I mean, we were we were probably under 10 percent. We were hemorrhaging money on staff that really wasn't producing. We were hemorrhaging money on advertising that wasn't producing results. We, you know, our expenses were out of control. And so I think I came up to 25% because of how low we were. And we've been working at, at getting it to 25. I think we're probably around 20, 22% right now. But I think if I can get it to 25, I'm actually happy. My staff is happy. They're compensated really well. As long as our marketing is working and we're not, you know, burning money and, and buying bad leads or, or just running pay-per-click campaigns that are just astronomical in cost, because it all adds up, um, I'd be happy at, at 25% if, I, if we can get there for sure. So let me ask for those of you out there who maybe are sole practitioners, don't have a lot of employees, maybe you've, you're more... Uh, you know, less experience, haven't done it. For those people, are there things that you guys want to know about how do, you know, what's my first step? Where do I go from here? What types of things should I be starting to, to track? Anybody have any questions about that? All right. 
And, so, and if you're and if you're a solo, this is the best time to start tracking it. I mean, and the key things, right? Where are your cases coming from? Are you paying for them? How much are you paying for them? How many are you dropping? You got to take that into your calculation. But all right, I, I think you had a question. Uh, hi, this is Rick. So I, I am a solo. I am going on 11 months. I'm about to hit a year uh, solo. And um, I just, I know you kind of touched on it, uh, but how you get your cases. I know you said marketing. I think you said something about buying leads, PPC campaigns. Have you noticed, since I don't have a lot of data, I just started doing that. Do you, have you noticed a better ROI on one versus the other? Do you do everything at one time? Since we have a limited budget as to where we're yeah. putting our money towards obtaining new cases, um, have you noticed one has been working better than the other? Or right now I'm buying, basically buying leads from lead generation companies. Yeah, yeah. And a great question and congratulations on your firm. Thank you. Um, I, look, all advertising works, period, end of story. Everything works, TV, radio, billboard, lead gen, PPC, it all works. It's how much you are willing to spend to acquire that case. So when we run our PPC campaigns, it, it had gotten to like $5,000 per cost per acquisition. Which and that's pay-per-click. That's pay-per-click. So when we did pay-per-click, it, it ended up being around 5,000. And I pulled the plug because I know what my average fee is per case. And it's like, and no planet would that make sense to me. I don't, I don't have the stomach to roll the dice on $5,000 a case and hope that I get a seven figure or, or six figure case. So I pulled the plug. And so this is why knowing, having that data. I mean, look, data put Jeff Bezos up in space and back down. I mean, they use data to make those calculations. Without that data, they couldn't design the rocket ship. They couldn't design the parachutes. They couldn't design the, the infrastructure of the, of the capsule. And so with your data as a solo with a limited budget, you can very easily gather data because you know what you are paying your lead gen and you know what it's gonna cost you to acquire that case. So what you need to figure out is what is your average fee? So look back over the 11 months on the cases you've settled and just calculate your average fee. And I'll tell you on our prelit soft tissue cases, I'll tell you right now, our average fee is somewhere between 12 and $18,000. It just depends. So if it's $12,000 my average fee and I'm paying $5,000 per case, and it's taking up my case manager, my legal assistant, my attorney, my overhead, my office space, the numbers don't work. You're on mute, Rick. Oh, I just said, yeah, I was thinking that, that those numbers actually don't make sense. You'd be even or upside down. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. And okay. I'll tell you just kind of as, as a, a thing that we've done, you know, obviously I've done 21 years of my own break. So I've had a lot of data, I've tweaked it every which way but loose. But, you know, we set goals and let's say our, our goal fee revenue for a year is $20 million. All right. That, that tells me if I set, if my firm settles 200 cases, my average fee is going to have to be $100,000. And so whatever your goal is, after you, you get enough information to kind of to set whatever your revenue goal is. And believe me, my revenue goal year one was uh, 100 grand, right? Um, my revenue goals now are a lot more than 20. But now let's just say you pick a date, you pick 10 million and you say, well, 
if I'm going to settle a hundred cases, my fee is going to have to be an average of hundred thousand dollars. I got to, if it's an average of $50,000, then I'm going to need to understand I'm going to have to settle twice as many cases. If it's 25,000, I'm going to have to settle three times as many cases or four times. But goals are important because you need to then say, okay, for me to meet this goal and I have to settle um, 200 cases a year, then that means divide that by 12, I have to settle, you know, whatever it is, 18 cases a month. And if I got four lawyers, then for each lawyer is going to have to settle 18 divided by four. I mean, these are some of the general thought processes. So having said that, I want to address the question that was on my mind. That's probably on a, a lot of people's minds. You know, I talked about, we all have excuses, reasons why we don't do this. And I, you know, we're really smart people. We're lawyers. We always, we're really good at figuring out why we don't do this and why we can justify not doing this. And one of the things is, Rez, you're like a numbers guy. You're like a, you love this shit. I hate this shit. I don't even know where to begin. You know, I just want to practice. Well, I didn't go to law school to learn about numbers. I learned about yeah. CCP, how do you address those of us? I want to and say, I, I don't want to do this shit. Yeah. Well, look, I didn't either. I wanted to practice law. Um, but I think if we're, if we're all going to be competitive in the future landscape of law firms and how they're run, how they're financed, then you need the sword, which is your ability to practice law and all the great stuff Mike does. But you also need the shield too, right? You need the sword and you need the shield and you need the shield, which is the business part of it, the numbers part. You, you're protecting yourself, your family, your biggest responsibility to your employees, right? I mean, they're relying on you for stability and they're relying on you for security. And so, you just have to have it. I mean, I, I don't know what to say other than like, I get uh, I get it that, that there are a lot of us that never wanted to, to do it. You know, if we wanted to run a business, maybe we would have been in a you know different field, but we chose to be lawyers. We chose to have our own practices. And so the responsibility is ours. And again, it starts with us at the top. And so if you set standards where your expectations are clear to your team, that we, we hold you to a high standard, we require this stuff, we expect it from you, you know what, they start acting a lot differently too. But if you're loosey-goosey and your head's in the sand and you're an absent attorney, um, an absent owner, that's also very, very transparent and people see that and you know they behave the same way. I was an absent owner for many years and I saw the damage that it did. And you know I think I lost probably about four or five years in, in the growth of my firm because I kept resisting the fact that, hey, look, nobody else is going to take the reins other than me. And so I finally just came to terms in it with it. And then I ended up loving it because I saw how effective it was to focus on culture, how effective it was to every single one of our employees takes uh, personality and cognitive assessments so that we know how they work, what their triggers are. That is, allows us to communicate better. 
And so if somebody loses their cool, we could go to their assessments, say, okay, these were the triggers and you figure out ways to better communicate, which is really the only way to grow. So ultimately it's investing again in yourself and understanding you need both the shield and the sword to compete against. I mean, I, I think the biggest firms, the biggest hedge funds, the biggest private equity, possibly public law firms, it will eventually happen. It'll happen within the next five to 10 years for sure. So Rez, I know you said you had about a half an hour. I don't want to, uh, I, if you can stay great, but I, I get it. Uh, I think you yeah, said you I had to leave. Jam. I'm so sorry, but anyone who ever wants, you can please reach out. I'm happy to talk to you. Um, my email is just reza at torquelaw.com, R-E-Z-A at torquelaw.com. Please and reach we out. We'll send, Rita will send everybody your contact information as well. Great. Mike, thank All you right. for having me on. Thank you for your mentorship. You're amazing. And thank Thanks, you, Rez. everybody. Have, have a great weekend. Thank you, my man. Thank so you. really appreciate it. So as you guys can see, the only thing to expect is the unexpected. My computer is completely frozen. So I'm on my phone. So I'm sorry that I'm running back and forth, but I'm hoping everybody can hear me. Um, the second part of this I wanted to do is say, look, I want to expose everyone to what I believe ultimately is very helpful to you in your practices. I get that for some of us, of us were like, oh shit, this must, this, if this is the way to make money, I'm screwed. I get that. Oh my God, public law firms coming in, hedge funds, I'm screwed. No, you're not. No, you're not. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to dumb it down and tell you how we took the what Rez is talking about, what the books that I've read, the people that I've talked to, the things, and how I uh, kind of simplified it, uh, spent, we had our first post-COVID in-office meeting with everyone yesterday, and I presented kind of the culmination of what I took from what Rez is talking about. And I want to share it with you guys, because I think when I tell you how it's done, the simple way, you can at least start the way I started. Okay, is everybody there? All right. So I have talked about things that I think are important in life and in law. And one of them is progress over activity. I don't care if you tell me how much work you've done, if you haven't accomplished anything. Right. Conversely, if you've accomplished something and you can do it with not a lot of work, I'm pretty happy. And so all of this metric, all of this measurement ultimately is to try to determine who's doing the things that progress your cases. OK, because. If there's something that happens in a pre-lit or a litigated case that moves it along to resol resolving it and doing it faster, that's progress. Okay. So then I said, well, what are the things 
that I think, and for us, it's litigation, that when we do them, when we accomplish them, I see positive movement in the case. We get a call from the defense lawyer saying, hey, why can't we mediate this case? We spur the other side into action. We tell the other side the kind of leopard we are. What are those things that show progress in a case? And I distilled it down to the following for litigation, okay? So I realize that the more complaints that we serve, and if we can serve more complaints, that that ultimately positively affects our bottom line. And that's because I know, and you don't have to figure this out, but I have, is that when we serve complaints, that means we're not taking bullshit pre-lit delay offers. We're moving along. And that telegraphs to the insurance companies, to the lawyers for the defense, that we are the type of firm that moves cases along. So I want to track on how many complaints we've filed. Because filing a complaint is nothing until you serve it. So I want to know how many complaints have we served. And we're tracking it every week with each of the teams. And in our firm, we have a lawyer, a paralegal, and a secretary. And each team has about 30 to 35 cases. And I want to know every week and then compile it every month how many complaints were served. I also want to know how many sets of discovery have we answered? How many sets of discovery have we sent? How many notices of deposition have we sent that are not PMK? How many PMK depots have we set? How many expert depots have we set? How many medical records have we requested? And there are more, but that's what I'm starting with. And we started this process really in earnest yesterday. And what I told the firm yesterday was, each lawyer is responsible for their caseload to compile this data. We're gonna give it to our CFO every Thursday. And on Friday of every week, he's gonna publish the results of all teams to everybody in the firm, okay? Now, I don't know yet how effective this is gonna be. Some of these may drop off, I may add other ones, but in about a month from now, I will have collected enough data to see differences between teams, differences between efficiencies, and I bet, the teams that have the highest numbers in that also will wind up settling the most cases in the firm because I know that those things are a corollary. So what I'd say is if you're a sole practitioner right, and it's just you running the cases, figure out, maybe use the same list that I did in litigation, how 
many of these things am I doing every week? And in about a month, now I have enough data to know what my goal would be. That, hey, I want a team to send out 75 depot notices in a month or 50 notices in a month. And then what I'm going to do is if a team meets a certain percentage of the goal, they get a bonus. But the whole bottom foundation of this is we've identified the things that are most important to moving cases forward. And we're tracking them so that we ultimately can do more of it. And when we see that a team is not doing it as much, the other teammates are going to help to bring the numbers up. So if, it's, if you're by yourself, you track it. And again, I, I want to open the floor to questions, but you got to start somewhere. As I said yesterday, everybody in the entire world, in everything they do, starts with the first act or the first step. So I get that this, you're like, well, I don't know this. Start. So I want to open the floor up because I gave a litigation one, but pre-lit, obviously, if you do a lot of pre-lit, you're going to want to know how many demands are sent out every week. Certainly how many medical records are ordered. Maybe you want to track how many MRIs your clients get per week, per month. How many, who knows? So let me open the floor to that. And I, you know, I will also send everybody the list that we're doing. Rita will send it along with Reza's information. <coughs> Anybody? Mike, all right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so what I, I have Go, started, Rick. I have started doing is just how many inquiries come in because I am paying for leads and how many of those, I mean, that's easy. It's X number of dollars per how many come in, but how many of those we actually convert? Because all I knew was how much every month I was paying for leads, but I didn't really, I, I so I just instinctively just started tracking because just to reduce costs. So for us is how many inquiries come in from this source? And from those inquiries, how many we actually convert, meaning like they sign a retainer, we sign them up. So we have a, uh, so that, that's something that I've been working with my paralegal on um, just right now is influx of cases. Cause what we were doing is I was yeah. cases coming in and then me going and work them. And then I forget about the cases, you know, so it's like two jobs. So right now, every week we're just saying, Hey, we signed up three new cases this week. So out of the, you know, the 27 that called in or something like that. So that's a, a I guess it would be called a KPI for us. I didn't, so let me, let me address the last thing on this, and thanks, Rick, is that I get it. Look, I'm no different than anybody here. I've been through all the same emotions, the same thought process that every one of you guys, every one of y'all are, are going through, have gone through, or will go through. I don't want to be a bean counter. I don't want to spend my day counting how many records we file. I want to be a baller. I want to be out there, you know, direct deposit money while I'm out, you know, killing slaying dragons. But let me ask you, 
has everyone here, you're working hard, but you just seem like you always got more to do than you have time to do it. And many times you got so much on your plate and so many things to think about that you actually don't get very much done because you're worried about all the shit you got to get done. And sometimes it's so much that it, your motivation is kind of like, well, fuck this. I'm just, what? How did I get here? One of the big things about motivation, you guys have heard me say this, is about consistent, many times ordinary behavior over time is what really is the secret to success. And one of the things that you can always do if you are so overwhelmed is you can count the number of depots you sent out. You can count the number of medical records you've ordered. You can count the number of demands. And I will guarantee you that if you do nothing but that, it will refocus you and you, the next step you will do is, oh, let me send out a few more. And I got to tell you that sometimes dumbing it down to the basics, well, I'm, I'm a big time lawyer in Los Angeles. I don't fucking count medical record orders. But many times doing these basic, ordinary, consistent behaviors are the most important factor in focusing case to case to case to case. And when you have a hundred of those cases and you do these things, it will settle 30% of your cases right off. Well, that's 30 cases. If you have 500 cases, that's 150 cases. You got a thousand cases, that's 300 cases. You will be shocked at how these incremental steps and analysis changes your practice and suddenly you're not worrying only about the biggest case and the shittiest case in your office you're looking at all the other cases and i suspect that most of you have spent 90 percent of your time on the five best cases in your office and the five worst cases in your office and understand that there's another 90 percent of your cases that you can make money on and help your clients by doing these consistent, consistent, but ordinary, ah, I need to send out five depot notices. Let me find five cases and send them. I guarantee you this will make a huge difference in your practice. Guaranteed, right? So look, Everybody can do this. And, you know, the benefit of it is if you can become good at this, consistent at this, it don't matter if you're a hedge fund coming in or public. This is about happy clients over and over and over. And if you do this, you settle their case, you settle it fast. They send you their friends, their family. They repeat business etc etc that is the secret so i'm going to send you guys res's info i'm going to send you the list the metrics that we use i am of course always open to talk i'll send you the books 
I'll give you the benefit of my mistakes. But it all starts with every one of us saying, I don't have to be a goddamn genius. I don't have to be Mike or Reza or anybody else, Jeff Bezos. I just got to get up and do the work consistently over time. One case is better than zero. Two is better than one. Three is better than two. Anything you do is better than what not, not doing it. So now go do it. And we're going to end. I want to see if anybody has anything they want to say, but this is the secret. It ain't all, you know, royalty and plums and roses. And that's great. Because for the people who think that's what it should be, you're going to blow by them. All right. Mike? I appreciate it. I'm sorry. The technical difficulty. Yeah. Mike, I was just going to ask Go you. Um, yeah. If you can share with us the, your data, if you don't mind sharing with us what data you collect after a month or so, I would be really curious how the information you gather, um, you know, uh, translates to your firm. And also what's your thought about what Ressa mentioned as to what's happening in Arizona, how uh, law firms are now owned by non-lawyers. Um, when do you think that's going to happen in California? Well, uh, most people I think that I've talked to think that it's going to happen. I mean, right. When the state bar publishes, the only thing they publish are the positive results of Arizona and Utah. Yeah. You kind of, kind of figure a state bar is going to do it. Um, who knows, but you know, people who say they know what they're talking about say it's coming in two years. But again, guys, obstacles, Fears can be good or bad, depending on how you deal with them. And I'm reading this book that obstacles are the way, not in the way. Oh, Mike, but you know what? Shut your damn face. Every, you know, you don't know what reality is like. I look, the facts are the facts. You can stick your head in the ground, ostrich, or you can say, look, I can't cheat myself. The facts are coming for all of us. That pond is still as big as it's always been. Maybe that, that fear of those coming in is what will get you guys to start tracking your cases, to start tracking whatever it takes to motivate you. But every one of us can survive. And I got to tell you, when I was, when I was um, younger, I think I may have told you, especially right when I got elected to be uh, secretary of Cala, right? I'm going to be president in like nine years later. I wrote to most of the past presidents, the Brown Greens, the Bruce Braylettes, the Stan Jacobs, the Terry Mixes, to all these people, right? Some of you probably, a lot of y'all don't even know who these people are. And I basically said, hey, I'm going to be president in a million years, you were president. Can I just take you to lunch and, and, and listen to you? And, you know, there's a lot of things about that, but a lot of people took me up on it. And I got to tell you guys, what I learned in lunch, the gifts that these people, just different people gave me was history. 
And I got to tell you that the fear that we all feel about the incoming hedge funds and in 72, in 80, in 89, in 95, in 2003, in 2010. Guys, when I came, when I moved here, okay, in 93, there was an initiative called the Terrible 200s. It was an initiative to cut all personal injury fees to 10% capped. I said, how did you guys deal with that? And they said, this is the third time we've killed it. Shit like this has been a part. These doomsdays happen forever. They're not as bad as you think. You can get by this and thrive. This is as much a learning opportunity and an adapting opportunity than it is a negative. It is up to every one of us to make those decisions. If you need to call me and talk about it, I'm happy to do it. But everybody has the ability to do this. I get it that it's easy to say, Mike, shut up. You're old. You've made all this stuff. That, that, that. I get it. But everybody can do it. And I say that with a healthy understanding of it ain't easy, but thank God it ain't easy. If it was easy, we'd have more competition. I love you guys. I will send you all of this and I will send it to you. I hope you use it. And um, everybody have a great weekend. I'm going to Monster Trucks this weekend. Boom. Thanks, Mike. Have fun. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Mike.